Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're bringing you a first, a cross-promoted, co-launched episode with the Running Life podcast sponsored by the Fitness Protection Program. Because this very, very real conversation with three black women about what it's like walking around looking like them during COVID-19 was too important not to share. We will have ableism part two for you next week. Listen in. I'm so excited. MK, thank you so much for putting this group of people together. And thank you all of you for being here. I'm excited to chat with you. And I thought, especially if we're going to be doing this on a couple of platforms, it would be helpful for everyone listening if we all introduced ourselves and then we could jump into the meat of the conversation. So do you want to hear about us first? Do you want to talk about yourself? Yeah, okay. Let's hear about you guys. <laughs> yeah, I was told you. that you guys were going to be in charge. So I'm just, I'm ready to take directions. <laughs> I'm Sarah and whichever direction Misasha's on in this is we are both half Japanese, half white. I'll let Misasha introduce herself later, but she and I have known each other for over two decades when we were walking out of a racial identity conversation back at Harvard as undergrads. And who knew that several decades later, we'd be having a podcast talking about, you know, the point of the podcast really is to have conversations that make people a little bit more uncomfortable, perhaps not with the intention of doing that, but really peeling back the layers of what life really is as it pertains to race and identity and happiness and history and psychology and all of these sorts of things. Misasha is usually more articulate at describing a lot of the show. But um, for me, I grew up in the suburbs of New York and wound up marrying a white Canadian man and have, I don't know what she's saying. MK is very quiet. I'm so sorry. Sorry. No, I know it's weird when I'm quiet. He's so white. He's clear, y'all. He's so white. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying we were having a technical I couldn't read problem. It. Yeah, I know. I'm like, what did I do wrong? <laughs> I'm just making fun of Sarah. Totally making fun of Sarah. Yeah. No. So I wound up, you know, my mom's Japanese. My dad was white, you know, the blonde hair, blue eyed, waspy New Englander. I wound up meeting him when we were living in Hong Kong, actually, really randomly. But he is a Canadian white guy. And we have two girls who present as white. So it's been an interesting conversation because Misasha has a different story. I don't know if you want to talk about it. Do you but want to talk about what you do? Too? Oh, like, gosh. I, <laughs> I just about me. Like about yeah. me. Okay. <laughs> My whole thing has been uh, positive psychology and life coaching. You know, I, I spent years selling my soul in finance and got to live in Tokyo because of that, which was fantastic. But when my dad died, I basically was like, oh yeah, and that's when I met MK. We were both living in Japan and then in Hong Kong at the same time. She nursed me back to health when I was sick, you know, with cups of tea, all that sort of stuff. Because there were not very many white women living in Asia in banking at the time. So basically after my dad died, I realized finance, I mean, I knew finance wasn't forever thing, but I really wanted to figure out how to be happy again after such a devastating loss. My dad and I were really close and I happened to stumble on the field of positive psych and my old teaching fellow from when I was an undergrad and basically one thing after another, I've been involved in that field for a long time. And then after staying at home with the kids for a bunch of years, have sort of reemerged, having written a book, done a TEDx talk. And I think though my most meaningful project has been this podcast that Misasha and I do. And I'm really, really grateful that we have this platform and that we get to talk to really interesting people about real stuff. So I'm Misasha. And if you see me sort of rocking back and forth, it's because I sit on this like preschooler's art table chair to record 
So my kids don't even fit in these chairs anymore, but I'm like scrunched in here. So sometimes, you know, I don't know. It's a lot. Okay. So anyway, that's why it's not your cameras. It's not you. It's me. So, you know, like Sarah said, I'm half Japanese. My dad is Japanese, actually the only member of his family to come from Japan to this country. And my mom was, is a white woman born and raised in Seattle. So Sarah and I met at Harvard and our lives were similar in some ways. I also went into finance in Tokyo. What are the odds? Quickly realized that wasn't for me and became a lawyer because, you know, I was looking for something that was so different. So I am still a lawyer, very part-time these days. I do intellectual property law. So patents, trademarks, doing some work right now around personal protective equipment, actually. But personally, I married a Black man from the South. He's from Louisiana. And we have two very mixed race boys. So, you know, Sarah and I started talking about the topics that we talk about in our podcast a lot because of, you know, my experience with raising my sons who present as well, no one knows what they present as, actually. Like, everyone's like, I don't know. I, you know, I've been called the nanny. My husband has been, you know, asked why he's playing with our son in our neighborhood. You know, you name it. What I've heard, you know, I heard you guys talk on Sunday and that was so, you know, all the stories that you were saying was stuff that I've seen, stuff that my in-laws have experienced. And so um, I'm so happy that we get to talk today because there's a lot of different narratives out there. And I think that we have a very dominant one in this country. And it's really important to understand that there are so many different experiences out there. So I was really excited that you guys are coming on because I have listened to the show before. I'm always interested in other people's experiences. My mother was born in Haiti, but she has one Cuban parent, one Jamaican parent. So already I knew as a kid, like how diverse people can be in one family. But then I just called it like everybody's different and we're all family. I always knew that I had family that came in lots of different shades, lived in lots of different countries. But as you get bigger, you start to learn the rules of how to be a Black person in a safe way in the United States. Like you have to learn that once you start going to public school and your parents having to sit you down and explain how to stay safe and how you always have to be cognizant of your behavior. It's exhausting because it starts from when you're little and it like never ends. So I'm a registered dietitian. I have a background in public health and I'm also very interested in the intersection of health outcomes and marginalization. And a lot of people right now are attributing these negative outcomes with COVID-19 to very simplified views of how Black people don't take care of themselves. When in reality, the fact that you just live under perpetual stress really affects the way your health plays out. But that's something that America refuses to acknowledge that this is something that the nation is doing to its citizens, not that this is something we're responsible for. And that constant victim blaming is evident in all areas of our culture. And probably people do this all over the world, but everyone can relate to this if you explain it to them in the right way. So a lot of the listeners are white American women and you have experienced this too, maybe not to this extent, well, honestly, depending on where you live, 
who knows? I don't know to what extent you've experienced being marginalized, but I just hope that everyone can hear that this is a human theme. This isn't a black issue. This isn't an Asian issue. Like maybe some people are in the hot seat right now, but this is an issue for all of us. And until everybody's free, nobody's free. And if you think that you're okay, just because you're not getting shit right now, you are mistaken. And you can just look at history and see how that plays out when you decide to turn your head when someone else is being given a hard time, because eventually it will be your turn. I love it. You said history, which we love. We're all about it because understanding that is so key to understanding what happens right now and how different people are being treated differently. So I I can jump in. So I'm lovey. And I kind of also went to Harvard at some point, you know, I just figured why use this money that I have lying around for anything other than giving it to an institution? <laughs> I don't have enough. So, I mean, you know. I'm honored to even know MK since I didn't go to Harvard. It seems like everybody else you know did. It's almost one of those things where it's like, I almost went, not almost, I'm certain I went because I got in and my dad was like, well, obviously you have to go. And I was like, well, there's some other schools that I got into and they're so much cheaper. And he's like, yeah. So anyway, so when you go to Harvard <laughs> and that was it, and you know, it's part of growing up. Right. So my dad is from the South and my mom is from Haiti. So it was one of the things that, you know, growing up, it was a pinnacle of success, right? Like, oh my gosh, my children, I was born in another country. I didn't speak the language and here I am. And now I have a child who's going, this is like the greatest thing ever. So I've had a really interesting upbringing, so to speak. You know, my mom really worked her tail off. Like she moved here with her siblings when she was 14, didn't know the language, moving to New York City, and they sort of rallied and did what they could. And my dad, being from the South, was one of the first Blacks to attend UVA. And we had literally just come from UVA this summer to go back and found his old yearbook and were able to talk to the faculty. And he was one of two in the first class ever. And the stories that, you know, we heard about his experience there were, you know, it was hard to hear because, you know, he was born in 1942. So they uh, killed MLK his freshman year. And he said that people were wow. protesting, were cheering in the streets. <gasps> yeah. Oh, it never even occurred to me. Right. There was another thought. Wow. There's another side of it. So they were all celebrating. And here's my dad, you know, along with maybe two or three other people sort of like, oh, okay, this is what we're doing. So anyway, long story short, MK and I actually got together because I went to high school with her husband. So jumped ship from New York and went to boarding school and, you know, met in Connecticut and then I met her. And it was just an amazing experience that I have no regrets about. But looking back, like I was a lucky kid. You know, and not everybody around us are that lucky. And it's hard to watch right now. It's hard to watch a lot of the things that are going on right now, a lot of the things that are being said. So I look forward to hashing it out (laughs) with you guys. So that's kind of funny because I also went to boarding school. Uh, (laughs) I love it. Everybody's so (laughs) six degrees of separation. (laughs) I am. And I literally live (laughs) less than 60 minutes away from UVA. No. Yeah, it's literally right down the road. I go and visit a friend there every couple months just to go to wineries and things, but I've yet to set foot on that campus for a lot of reasons. But 
it's interesting. So my background, I um, my I grew up with both parents in the home. They're two black folks from North Carolina. So I'm North Carolina, born and bred. I'm the oldest of four, and I was kind of like their like golden child. <laughs> it's like, oh, whatever she needs to succeed and get out of here. And I even remember my mom being like, "This isn't home for you. You need to find somewhere else." And not like in a negative way, but in a this is not for you. You've got to get out of here. And I did, which is really great. I went to an all-girls boarding school, a Moravian all-girls boarding school. Fabulous tradition. Had a blast. Um, have some of the best friends that I've ever met there. Then I went to Roanoke College, nestled in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a small liberal arts college, mostly white. And then I graduated and worked for a small telecommunications software company, which then led me eventually to work for a quasi-governmental agency. I cannot tell you which one because... Then you have to kill us. (laughs) 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 But I am a financial analyst for a a quasi-governmental agency, which is far off from what I actually studied. I have a degree in sociology and a degree in music. I um, love it. And you would think just if you... The only thing you knew about Black women in America was what you saw on TV. We do not exist. Right. We're figments of our own imagination. We are not real. Yeah. And all the time I get people like some of my best friends are like, oh, like you're just full of surprises. And and it's like, yeah, but like anybody can do these things that I do and enjoy. It's not like I, you know, it's not like you have to have like a license to go out and run. You don't have to have a license to volunteer. You don't have to have a license to be in a sorority. So it's just interesting to me when people are like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of annoying, too. At first, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm so special. And then it's like, wait a minute. But what does that mean? Why is that surprising? Yeah, why am I? I can literally do whatever I want. I'm not going to wait for an invitation. I'm not going to wait for people's approval because, you know, I'll be dead. I'll never get to do what I want to do with my life. This is my life. That's what people fought for. That's what people died for. And I know there are a lot of people out there who still wait for permission, who will say, oh, well, I don't listen to that. That's not Black music. You know, people, other Black people trying to tell me how to be Black. Well, I'm not okay with that either. I'm just trying to live my life and I don't have to do anything special to be Black. Look at how Black I am. I can do whatever I want. Like, I will still be Black. <laughs> I will still be Black before and after this activity. Thanks, friend. <laughs> and then MK wants me to tell you all how I met her. And basically, I had a really horrible, horrible experience at the Berlin Marathon. And oh, I through like- social media, MK found me. And I've been running with Fitness Reception ever since. And I'm also a sponsored athlete for the program. So yeah, when I'm not doing all those other things, I am running marathons. Uh, I got to interject because you you tell y'all are so not as quite as effusive as I would be about how amazing all of you are all the time, but that's okay. Not the moment. (laughs) I got to say, I actually met Nakia through some, the way I viewed that was there was all of this going into the Berlin marathon, these pictures of black people. Now, not black people at the front of the race. It's like they were like, find me a fat black person so we can put it on the side of a bus. And the picture that they used on their social media was Nakia right in front of the bus with an inspirational slogan. Now, they had promised her and a whole bunch of other people some fat black running influencers. Did you approve that in advance? Like you knew that was going to happen. 
Did oh, they tell you that? No, no, no. They had promised you, as I understood it, they promised Latoya that they wouldn't be shutting down the finish line area. You would be allowed if you were, uh, so they have to technically shut the course down. But if you're beyond that time, they will wait for everyone to come in. You still get a medal. You still get an official time. Yeah, it didn't happen. So after using her picture in their advertising, where they denied her the medal, lied to her unapologetically. There's pictures of her crying on the curb in Berlin, not being allowed to cross the finish line, having being at the finish of this marathon that she flew her on her own dime to go to fucking Germany to run this race. And then they're advertising her with the motivational, anyone can do this. And I'm like, <gasps> oh, they were so bad. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm not okay. I mean, my first like international trip with my mom and my sister, like they had never seen me run a race before. And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I'm going to Berlin. And they're like, we're going too. And I was like, Oh, great. Uh, <laughs> oh no. So, so everybody, Everybody basically went through that traumatic experience. Right. I mean, that is jacked. Trauma. I mean, it just hung like a cloud over the rest of the trip. I kind of feel like Chris needs to leave that in, that that was some racist fuck shit. Because that being used in marketing in an exploitative way, that has happened to every black registered dietitian I know. When I started my program, I walked in the room. I went to GSU. I'm not going to protect them. I went to GSU. Okay. And their marketing is all about, we're so urban. We're so urban. And I will say they were outside of the nutrition program. When I walked into the nutrition program, I was like, where did everybody go? What happened? It was a completely different scene. And yet my face was plastered all over the department's marketing materials. I'm the only one and you're getting all this mileage out of me. And when you enroll in most schools, you basically have signed a waiver for your photograph to be used. And it's just so freaking tacky. But then when I would talk about how I felt like my educational experience was kind of a little shitty because they kept saying racist stuff under the guise of reviewing research, but through this very white supremacist lens, no one would listen to my voice. So you'll take all these pictures, you'll take my tuition, but I have no voice here and I have to just keep eating shit and saying, yummy, yummy. Like it's just not acceptable. And it's just one of those things that you know it is coming. Like you never know when. And so you're always tense waiting for the next insult that you paid for. You paid to get insulted. Yes. And there's something really messed up about paying to get insulted. Oh, a lot of races. I mean, it's one of those things where, I mean, I am always, especially if it's not happening in a region where people know me. So like across Virginia, I have a pretty good like base. People know me from the mountains to the beach. But the minute I go to another state, I can almost say pretty much 75% of races. I've had somebody roll up on me and try to teach me about running during a race. No, mind you, I come with the full garb. I've got the Brooks pants. I've got the shoes. I've got shoes that you pretty much can't buy without ordering them through a run store. I've got a garment. Like I'm wearing the gooders, like I'm wearing the whole gamut. And every single time somebody will come up to me and I'll have to be like, oh no, sorry, this is my XYZ half marathon. This is my XYZ. Like even with full marathons, of course, like people are like, oh, you couldn't possibly have ever done this or even possibly trained. And that's kind of, it's almost like the mindset that people have about not only black women, but then you layer on fat black women and they literally think that you just rolled off a turnip truck. 
Like they literally yes. they cannot imagine that you have a brain, that you're highly educated, that you are even self-sufficient. Like that's the other thing too. It's like, oh, like all the time. It's like, oh, you have a house? Like you right, have a oh, right. like, you, you have a job. Oh, and, and it's not just like a hourly thing. Oh, you have a salary job with a government agency. Oh my right. God, how'd you get that? Do people ever know. come into your office and try um, to get you to like take messages or anything because they assume you're in a different role than the one that you're in? Oh yeah. People yeah. come to my house and assume that I am that the you nanny. work there. They assume yeah. that I am That's nanny. We, we live in New Hampshire and I live like in seriously, I don't know where I live, but it's in the woods. It's <laughs> I have come you know, I've connected with it now. But literally I have people come to my door and they're like, Can I speak to the owner, please? And I'm like, Well, who the hell do you think I am? Wow. It's like two in the afternoon. Like it's eight in the evening. Like the pizza guy will legit like look over my shoulder and I'm like, dude, you got to be, gotta kidding, be kidding, me. kidding me. But that's that Harvard money. So you must have like a bomb ass house. My house is not a bomb. I'm not you know, but it's also New Hampshire. So, you know, things are a lot cheaper up here than it's in New York City. But for real, it's, and I was telling MK, and, you know, not to like jump too far, but when we first moved here, I was like, I have to find my running route. Like, I have to get on it. Like, I, you know, and so I remember the first day that I went to go out for a run. And I was like, okay, there's a neighborhood next door to us. I don't want to go really far. We, there are 10 houses on our street. So that's literally like running a mini track. You know, so I was like, okay, I have to go to the next neighborhood, which is much bigger, far more acreage. And so I run down the road and then I immediately get on their street. And I kid you not, within 20 seconds of running, my stomach said, you got to go home. Like you could just see the looks of people who were driving their cars and all of a sudden slowing down. And it was that look of like, who the hell are you? And what are you yeah. doing on our street? What are you doing here? And what are you running here for? you don't live here. And I was like, Oh my God. Like people legitimately were, I was like, what am I going to do? I'm running. I'm running. Even if I rob you, like I can't go far. I can't carry much. That's crazy. Like, what are you thinking? And so that was the last time it was a one run and done. And I was like, Nope, I got to find like a, the, so I started running in the woods. I had to start running in the woods where I was like, nobody has proprietary ownership of woods. Right. They might kill me, but let's run a little faster. Exactly. What you're choosing as a woman, as a woman, no, you're, you're making the choice between mm -hmm. a public street and a yeah, and, and honestly, the wood team because I'm that confident in my running skills, where I was like, you know, I no one can catch you. I'm quick. I'm quick. <laughs> I can move. But I'm like a whole street where I'm exposed. I felt way too exposed. I felt way too exposed. And there were way too many eyes looking at me all shadily. And I was like, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And I feel uncomfortable. And this is not home yet. Like, I would rather run back in Brooklyn, where I grew up, in East New York, where I know who's who and what's what. And like, just don't look too hard. But running down a random street in New Hampshire is a big no-no for me. Like, I just won't do it. Well, and then it's there's something about that that just irritates me so much because I constantly hear from a public health perspective that people of color just aren't getting out there and taking care of themselves. But there's so many instances that I can think of that all three of us, we have a high level of access and privilege. And so I can't 
even imagine, well, I can't imagine because I hear it from people, what other people go through. So it's like this times, you know, who knows how much. But if when you go out to do something that is proven to relieve stress and is good for your health and it turns into this toxic experience. Right, thing. Exactly where it is not health promoting, you know, how can we continually ignore how much of an impact chronic stress has on marginalized populations and then keep carrying on and on about how much we want to help these people? Because you're right. People think you fell off a turnip truck. You're not self-sufficient. So everybody thinks that we are in need of a savior for these groups of people. All the time. But no one wants to think, oh, could I be making these people sick with all of my my unquestioned white supremacy? Could it be me? I'm just like, get a mirror, America. I mean, it's getting to a point where it's emotionally exhausting to have to keep explaining that racism is real. This was a conversation I had from like, I don't know, age 10 until maybe... The beginning of the Trump administration, because I swear to you, before that point, we people kept telling me, I know, right? Uh, can we take that out, Chris? <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I, I mean, seriously, people kept saying, Do you, have you ever experienced racism before? What? <laughs> people will seriously yeah. ask me that question. The foolery. Okay. Oh, I am so excited to keep on with this conversation. <laughs> I mean, me I feel too. like what from what I just heard, the number one, please tell me. The number one thing or the first thing that we're talking about or the thing that a white person can do differently is shut up and check your assumptions before you offer any unsolicited any assumptions about anything. Mm -hmm. Yes. Whether it's the person opening the door and delivering pizza to your house or running, you know, on a race or anything, just shut up. Is that right? And look inward. Question your own thoughts. Why do you assume this is the housekeeper? And does that make any sense? You probably came to the door dressed like a business professional working from home. Why would a housekeeper be wearing that? Can you look at people a little more closely and not just get stuck at complexion? Or also conversely, if I'm walking around in a house robe with like a sports bra... (laughs) Who's paying you? <laughs> paying you like that. That's nonsensical. I mean, if it was a French maid, I mean, the food here, and they're like, "Ma'am, can I speak to the owner?" It's like, um, yes, yes, and that's how extreme it can be. And nine times out of ten, what I'm finding because the people who are hardcore racists who see themselves as white nationalists, I don't know them personally. Like I may be growing up in my hometown because we were such a small town. You maybe knew their family, but you also knew don't go on their property. Um, you maybe can talk to their kids at school, but don't you ever touch them. Literally, you know, you knew the rules, but by and large, I'm not having contact with people who self-identify that way. I'm having contact with people who say I'm not racist because in their mind, it's this dichotomy. You're either willing to hang someone, lynch someone or tie someone up and drag them behind your pickup truck or you're a nice person. That isn't how it works. White supremacy is everywhere and We are all internalizing it. And when you call it what it is, people get extremely uncomfortable. Like in the 90s, it was just being racially insensitive. No, it's buying into the belief that white is the default, 
white is better, white is best, and everything else is less than. And you have varying degrees of that as you become less and less white presenting. And even like people just need to question, why do you laugh when you hear someone who's come to this country and learned to speak English as a second language? Why is it funny to hear that certain people can't pronounce certain letters because that sound didn't exist in their first language. It's funny to you because you think you're, and this is kind of nationalism mixed with maybe some white supremacy. You think that your native tongue is better than everything else. And it's funny to watch someone try to act like they're as civilized as you. Like the way we would all laugh if we think we hear a dog kind of answer us in English. Like you see videos like that on Instagram and TikTok all the time. And it's cute because it's like, oh, it's almost like they're human, except you're doing that same thing with someone who is human and happened to learn to speak a second language. And conversely, like, I think how impressive, you know, like my immediate assumption is like, dang, you are skilled. Like, I wish I could speak multiple languages. And here we are. And it's like English. Yeah. And it's so humbling. It's so humbling. When you try and learn another language, it's humbling because you can sit there swearing you're saying it correctly and you can't hear it. You can't hear how much you're not getting it right. For you guys who are actually still out running, I have barricaded myself in the basement, so I'm not out for a multitude of reasons. But are you guys still out and running? And then, you know, I know the whole mask conversation came up and you know, MK and I, I talked about the, it really quickly and I was like, I, I want to yeah. go into that if you're up for that as part yeah, of that answer to your sure. question, because yeah. we, you know, I, to just interject, you know, there were a couple of articles that all of us had been sending around in preparation for this conversation. And it was like the root and from Boston globe and CNN. And there was a lot of people articulating what some of my friends locally were already saying just on their own personal channels. And so if that's okay for me to just, talk about that. And then we can come back to your question, Lovey, because I think that is the perfect segue into what we're going to talk about. So for everybody listening, I don't think it's a surprise. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention is now recommending that all Americans wear homemade face coverings in public to help stem the spread of coronavirus. But from those sources that I just mentioned, there was one in particular that jumped out at me. Trevin Logan, who's an economics professor at Ohio State University, said that this wearing a homemade mask seems like a reasonable response until you just sort of take American society out of it. When you can't do that, you're basically telling people to look dangerous, given racial stereotypes that are out there. And he said this is in the larger context of black men fitting the description of a suspect who has a hood on, who has a face covering on. It looks like almost every criminal sketch of any garden variety black suspect. So that was one quote that I wanted to present to you. And the second one was, even so, Chi Johnson Long, a black woman who works for the Racial Justice Action Center in Atlanta, said she does plan to wear a mask in public. I will be wearing a mask because it can protect other people from what I may potentially have. And this is from the CNN article. But what I will also do while wearing a mask is all the things that I'm already doing as a black person in Atlanta. I will text people before I leave the house so that someone knows where I am. I'll make sure to travel with someone that I know or to let someone know when I get home. If I take walks, I'll make sure that I say hi to people so that they can recognize that I live in the neighborhood. I'll do all the things I would do if I was afraid of being stopped by the police anyway. And she also, because she's a woman, has 
less of a fear of being shot before she gets a chance to do any of those preventative things. Yeah. So you touched on it on the Sunday thing, but when you're talking about going out and doing these runs, how do you feel about whether you're going out food shopping versus going for runs? How do you feel about this idea of wearing masks? So for me, I still will not wear a mask running. I 100% won't, won't do it. I go out at dawn. Um, as I mentioned on the last conversation, I go out before dawn. So it's dark. I wear a spotlight on my chest. People already think I'm trying to go through their cars because of the neighborhood that I, I run through. It is a not as wealthy neighborhood that's backed right up to a neighborhood that's pretty swanky. And so I actually usually cross the street and go through this pretty swanky neighborhood. I mean, it is what it is, but it gets me about enough mileage of what I need. But as far as like my day to day, I plan on wearing a mask because I can present differently outside of my running clothes. So for me, I can present as a preppy, late 20s, fun, fur flirty. Like I can kind of give off a different vibe. Whereas while I'm running, I literally can't give it in like what I would normally do. So, you know, if I'm going to the store, like I will get dressed, like I will put on real pants. I will put on like a nice sweater and put my hair up in a ponytail and I'll wear a headband, maybe something that's cute. And then I'll have one of the very surgical looking masks that I've bought online that has a replaceable filter on the inside to just further prove I'm not here to rob you. However, like that person that said that they're going to text their friends and confirm. I mean, that's something I already do. My friends know if, or even my coworkers already know if I'm not here by nine 30 and no one's happening, something happened to me, please confirm. (laughs) My boyfriend already knows if, I am not in my home after his shift is over. He's a 911 operator. If I'm not in my home, something has happened to me. So there's a lot of these contingency plans. It almost sounds like, you know, we're going on a bad Tinder date. You got to like let people know, like, I already have a beard. <laughs> yeah, drop your location. Send yeah, that yeah. drop your pin. Well, it sounds pin. like when you go to stores and stuff, you can bring that boarding school vibe through your clothes and then people know oh well we feel more comfortable is this brown person belongs to the class of people that we are comfortable with right Mm -hmm. and it is true whenever i wear workout clothes i feel like it's difficult for me to bring that vibe and i have sometimes i don't realize how much people of color rely on other cues to try and communicate to people I am safe in the form of clothing. And you don't have that, especially if you're a larger woman. Now, if you're a very thin woman, then maybe if you wear enough Lululemon, people still get the vibe while you're working out. But once you get to a certain size, it's just like whenever you work out, you have no class markers. Right. And I'll wear, I mean, I'm a strong believer in wearing event shirts and things, which is always my favorite and go-to because it's like, oh, well, like if I'm wearing the shirt, I must have done the event, right? Right. Uh, false. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I don't wear the event without wearing the shirt. But people assume, people are like, oh, you've never run before. Marathon, huh? what is that? Three blocks? Uh, it's like it's like people wearing the harvard shirts right yeah i don't think other people realize how much thought goes into what you wear as a black woman who's an athlete going to 
run, going to work out, going to anything. So like, I know that when I go outdoors to run, I very specifically wear very bright socks. I wear very bright tops. You know, I do all sorts of things. I don't wear typical headphones. Like I look like Radio Rahim. Like I will play my music from the speaker if I'm going to wear music. Like I don't have anything covering my ears. I'm like, no one can pretend like they didn't see me. If a car comes for me, I could be like, how could you not see me? This was personal. <laughs> like, like yes. that's the level that I'm working with. And even with the face mask, like I see people, you know, making the home masks and they're selling them. And I see the prints and I'm like, oh, I can't wear that. That's like you made a skeleton print. Like I can't wear that. People will look at me like I am out to get them. I was like, I need strawberry shortcake. Like I need, <laughs> you know, the most non-offensive, fluffy, frilly, sparkly, cheery thing that you have that doesn't say anything negative or frightening at all because I already am on two levels down from everyone else in terms of what they think I'm there for and what I'm going to do. And there were there was a recent, um, I think somebody posted on TikTok. Good God, I can't believe I'm referencing TikTok, but... <laughs> Someone posted on TikTok. Okay, so it's Because you got too old for that. Like, I'm way too old for that. And they posted on TikTok that these two Black men went into a Walmart wearing surgical-style face masks, the ones you get from the hospital, and you could see the security guard kicking them out because I can't remember what state it was, but there had been a, you know, mandate that, that masks were not allowed in stores. And I'm like, for real, for real? It's illegal in Virginia. So technically, I just told my mom about this today because I was like, oh, my God, like the CDC is telling us that we need to cover our face. But technically, it is illegal to have a part of your face covered if, unless it's for religious reasons. And so I think the governor had to go back and like write another executive order to say that you're now allowed to wear a mask. But I mean, if you think about people go off based off the first thing, it's just yeah. what folks do so if the first thing you told me was wearing a mask is illegal then i personally especially being a brown person am like mm, mm, no nope. you, you said it was illegal and i could go to jail and i don't want to go to jail i don't care what the cdc who is the cdc like do i get a note yeah and when are they going to read that after they pick it out of my pocket my dead body's pocket. Like, when is that even going to help? And I know too, as a community, Black Americans are very skeptical in general of the medical establishment because of their super dicey history with <laughs> taking advantage of the trust of undereducated people of color. Hello. And then you just think, and or even everything that we have as far as gynecological medicine comes from like, horrific experimentation on people who were victims of what people still don't want to accept majorly informs our present, which is massive crimes against humanity on an unprecedented scale, like an unimaginable scale that we still, people tell you, just get over it. That was a long time ago. It's I can't happening. even count how many, thank you, that, that too. Get over it. When it stops, we can start talking about getting over it. But it hasn't. Well, and even what they're doing now. Did you see that they're going to do the first run of testing in Detroit? Who's Girl, in Detroit? 
Yeah, there you go. There you go. I have friends who say you never go, don't get a flu shot outside of a white neighborhood. You're taking your life into your own hands. I always get it at work. I will never get it anywhere else. And I know that sounds terrible, but. It sounds paranoid, right? But history has proven that it doesn't pay to be trusted. (laughs) It doesn't pay. And there's still disparities in care. I mean, I think we talked to an OBGYN. I mean, you, the numbers for maternal health care for Black women still. versus white women. I mean, it's still, yeah. all of that does, it truly does continue. And my OB um, is my friend for that reason. Like, I literally found, yeah. I found out that this woman, she was in my run group. I found out this woman was an OB and I'm like, great, I'm going to go ahead and transition my care over to you so that when I do finally decide to have children, and she lives like down the street, like she's That's one awesome. of the houses that I pinpoint so that if I were to ever get in trouble, I know at least three neighbors that live on that side of the road that I can run up and knock on their door or look for their car and know that I'm safe, which and it's, it's sad it's, to have that contingency exactly, plan. Exactly. But there's, I mean, there's so many areas of my life where I put that contingency plan in place to protect myself. And then also on the other side of that, I think I get really sad when I think like, what about the women that don't? have that contingency plan? What about the women who, or even, you know, Black people in general that don't have those options? Like I have, you know, created this community to support myself. But at the same time, there's people that don't have that access and don't have that support. So it's always, it's always a double-edged sword because it's like, I feel like I'm taking advantage of that, you know, connection and access. And then just realizing that others don't have that option. Hearing all of you talk about the attention you pay to what you wear when you go out flies so much in the face of, so I am in Denver and we're in like outside of downtown, but we're still in Denver proper. And I'm sure this is the case as athleisure took over women's wear, but it is so wildly different than how white women approach what they're wearing. Like none of this stuff would have, you know, having to wear a Care Bear face masks or not put skulls on or having to be brightly colored, that sort of stuff. It is really different when you think about the way you mentioned it. So I'm really grateful that you shared that. Well, and I also really appreciate that you guys have been sharing this too, because I had a similar conversation with my husband who bought a road bike. And I was like, you might be the only black cyclist that anyone is seeing. We live in the Bay Area. So it is a place where people are very openly not racist, allegedly, but there is a lot of side eye for sure and things that are said. So he, when the mask guidance came out, he was like, there's no way I'm going to wear one. When I'm going out and exercising, like I already wear a lot of black stuff. I'm already intimidating enough as it is. There's absolutely no way I'm going to give anyone any further excuse to come after me. So this is really powerful for me to hear you guys talk about this as well. Well, you know, after our call last week, I brought it up to my boyfriend. I was like, oh, I just got done talking to MK about that. And I was like, oh, about this, you know, this mask. And I was like, sweetheart, you aren't going to wear a mask, are you? And he goes, absolutely not. Why would I even consider that? And he's, you know, six foot one, 32, 75 black guy that's bald. And even with working within the 911 dispatch office still wouldn't feel comfortable wearing a mask in public which just goes to show like is like are we really safe <laughs> you might be safe from corona but what else is coming <laughs> in? 
I think that speaks volumes, you know, and I think you mentioned in that last episode, therefore, please don't make assumptions about people who aren't wearing masks. It's not that they're like just flagrantly disregarding suggestion, but it's a really thought out approach. I did have a question about like, you know, the media was talking about the masks in particular, but is there any part of what the media is talking about that they're missing that you think that they're missing? Well, and I would also add on to that, too, because, you know, we along with the mass, we're seeing a lot of data now about how the coronavirus in general has been disproportionately affecting minorities and how the mortality rate is higher and the treatment is worse. And so, you know, and it's starting to get media coverage now and some governors are starting to respond, but it's very slow and it's still so backwards in so many ways. So, you know, not just mass, but on a broader scale too, I would love to hear what you guys think about that. If there's personal feelings that you have, or you feel like stuff is not being talked about, that would be amazing to hear. From my perspective, I think that what they have missed, like, of course, because the big thing seems like, oh, those people in the South just aren't staying put. And of course, you know, what people also think is like, oh, those Black people in the South and just hearing about, you know, how New Orleans might be the next big peak. Well, you have to think about who was disenfranchised the last time New Orleans had an issue. Like, if you think back, who got left out in literally the rain? And it's going to happen again. And it just happened. It's very, it's cyclical. Like, I think it just continues to show that people think it's, oh, those folks don't know how to just stay indoors. When really, when you think about who is, keeping up these systems of capitalism and when you when people like when I've mentioned it to folks because that's been the biggest frustration I've had is oh well you know people just won't stay put and da 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 and I and I mean MK and I talked about it you know texted a couple days ago it's white collar quarantine if you can work if you're considered essential which seems to be all the things that prop up capitalism and who's usually in those jobs. And then you get to the ER and they say, oh, your symptoms aren't really that bad because systematically our symptoms just aren't seen as being real. They're not getting treated. They might not get a bed. They might get sent home. And then, you know, what if you don't have a support system? What if your family is also ill? Also, families of color tend to live together, especially in some of the more urban areas where rent's expensive. Like, Brent's going to be the other big thing that kind of causes this problem. And I always, I think another thing for me personally is that I'm, I keep thinking about, okay, good. We make it through this crisis and, you know, we get the big, you know, flag from CDC. Everybody can go back to work. It's great. Da, 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 da. Who's going to be left in the dust? Like who's going to be left behind to either not have a job. They're going to come back thinking they have a job and they don't. Who's going to have to deal with a whole bunch of medical bills? Because guess what? They lost their job. So therefore, they can't have health care. Like they won't have health care to cover these bills that are coming. And knowing the way the health system bills, they aren't going to get those bills until they just get done trying to catch up on their rent if they didn't get evicted. And so it's just I think that's the other thing that a lot of people are missing is that not only are we dealing with this crisis now, we're kind of transitioning more to that. Okay, we're going to be all right around this time. Yeah, we're going to be all right. But are we going, like, what happens to the least of us? Like, what happens to the folks who couldn't afford the ER visit but went anyway? What happens if 
you had to sit on a ventilator for a week on end. That can't be cheap. That's not going to be cheap. So it's just, I think that that's where the media is really missing that piece is what are going to be the further implications. And I think many of them aren't even considering talking about that because they also don't know either. I mean, what, Congress doesn't go back into session until, for another 11 days. They've been on spring break. So, like, if people thought that they were going to get the legislation they needed in a quick fashion, it's not happening. And I am concerned deeply because I think it's going to completely and disproportionately not only ravage those communities, um, our communities, but it's also going to leave such a long lasting effect. I'm sure that there's folks that never really recovered from 2008 situation. Like, and now, you know, they might've just gotten to the point where they're climbing out and then bang, hit again. And this is not something anybody would have planned for. There's probably not insurance for it. It's really frustrating. And then I also have another group that I think is going to be super impacted is our um, undocumented folks. Because not only are they not going to get assistance from the government, at least in Richmond, Virginia, they are completely, they help build our restaurant industry. Like, we don't have a restaurant industry that we're known for in New York Times without them. But now all of those businesses have practically shut down. And so there's going to be a lot more need in those communities. And I know and I hate that we are in a climate now where people are going to immediately put targets on those folks back. And so (laughs) that's my soapbox. It's hard to watch. And I've had to turn stuff off for that exact reason, because with the mixture of knowing where I sit in society and knowing that I'm going to be okay, just knowing that there's going to be a lot of people and it's going to be a trickle down effect. And there's children that are going to miss years of things that they need because they're going to get past the next grade. And, you know, and there's just a lot of things that I don't think anyone really considered. But at the same time, I think that it's a great idea that we're doing social distancing because every life matters. And I think it's very important that we keep people alive and that if, you know, me sitting in my house for however long it needs to be keeps one more person with their family for several more years or, you know, keeps that person who is immunocompromised from getting ill. We've done our job. <laughs> and that's what I see out of it. It uh, reminded me when you said that we're so lucky that we do have a home or like a roof over our heads. And it made me think about the homeless people. And I don't know off the top of my head, the breakdown of demographics, you know, in terms of homeless, but like the visuals that we saw in Las Vegas, where hotels are sitting empty, and then they painted six foot lines on concrete for the homeless people to sleep on in order to stay apart really made me sad because I felt like that was a very clear visual representation of the lack of humanity or respect for people's humanity. And I feel like that ties into what we were talking about with regard to race, because sometimes people don't see a black person as a person. They see you as a black person first, but something goes missing based on the stories you were sharing at the beginning of our conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even here in Richmond, as this, the crisis was kicking off a couple of weeks ago, we have a almost like an encampment. Like there's a like a section of town where people put up tents and people have been living there for a while. It, this is not a new space or place, but people had been living there for a while, different camps and things. Tents are up and literally they 
gave them two nights. And when they were in the hotel, they went through and grabbed a bulk trash truck. And that's very specific because it, they, instead of checking to see if anybody was still there or in there, they took the bulk trash truck and grabbed up all of their belongings while they were in a hotel room for two nights at the beginning of a crisis. And thank goodness that people had taken video and things because a lot of people didn't know about it until it started circulating on Instagram. The news didn't know about it. They were really trying to do it on a very quiet. And then they said, well, it was because of the pandemic. But if you spend just money on two nights, what do they do after that? And we've still had, you know, below 50 nights here in Richmond since then. So it's just this mindset of, oh, like we'll take care of them and then sweep away their stuff. I think that now's the time, at least in in this crisis, is to like take a step back and really sink into that humanity. We're not. I think that there's elements where people are like, yeah, I'm gonna make a mask. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. But people were really fuzzy about, you know, providing food to kids that were used to eating at school, or people were like, oh, well, why are those family groups together in the park? So it's a weird dichotomy of humanity going on right now. There's a lot of criticism, and then there's a lot of this. Oh, we've got to help these people. But then there's this gap in the middle where it's like, okay, well, who are you missing still? Who still needs services? Who still needs support? I think that's a great point about who still needs support because I think a lot of, I don't know where it is where you all are, but I've seen tons of grassroots support just spring up in Denver. And then the uh, school district did an excellent job here of making sure all the kids who are on free and reduced lunches continue to be fed through this whole time, which considering I think there's, 80 to 90,000 students in Denver public schools and dirt for distance learning. They like really were thoughtful about the holistic approach, but I feel like that's the approach that is more helpful as opposed to, because then you can see who's being captured or not. Whereas these pop-up efforts of let's feed the doctors or, you know, make masks, that sort of stuff. I think it's great. The intention is there, but it sounds to me like that's how people get missed because you assume they're being covered by the grassroots efforts. Yes. All right. So this has been one of those things where, you know, internally I've had some major issues. My husband, by the way, is like the biggest tall white Jew you've ever seen. He's like the Shaquille O'Neal of Jews. You know, no one thinks he is. And so, and he's also a doctor, which is also how we ended up in New Hampshire. Long story, truncated. So, you know, when everything sort of broke out and everyone's like, oh my God, how can I help? And people started making masks for the medical folks. And I'm like, babe, can you guys use these? He's like, no, we can't use those. And so it was one of these things where all of these efforts were going in places where I just felt like, but they don't need it. You know, like in our town, and I'm going to burn for this, but like the really nice restaurants were having people... This is really something. They were having people buy lunches for the medical staff, right? And I'm like, wait, so y'all are having us buy lunches for the people who still have jobs, who can actually afford lunches. I get the spirit of it. You know, I'm not knocking the spirit of like, take care of your brothers, take care of your sisters, take care of each other. But I'm thinking about the kids who live in the trailer homes down the road from us who are now at home, no longer having lunch. Parents just got fired from their jobs and they need it. You know, but how do you say that to people who 
want to give. And so it's this, it's, I have an issue where I see people doing things and I don't want to say for those who don't need it as much, but like I'm from New York. And so when I see what's happening in New York and we're up here and people are like, well, let's do this. And I'm like, nah, you know who needs this? There are like hundreds of people, black folk and Hispanics and taking the train. You want to do something like you have your little vacation house somewhere, offer it up. You know, you have all your 500 rolls of toilet paper, give one out to somebody who actually needs it. Stop playing. You know, but anyway, so I sound really hateful. I'm not, <laughs> but I just think no, that. Because I think that plays into something else where if you were to correct someone or say like, hey, have you considered, even if you layer like the sticky sweetness on, have you considered potentially doing it this way? People are going to immediately come back and slam you and be like, well, you're just right. being rude. Negative. And it's right. Like, and it's because people think that we don't have the awareness to say like, I mean, I understand. And we're in a situation where there are a lot of these. And I think people think, okay, well, if we go ahead and, and just feed the doctors, that'll be our good deal. That'll be our good deed for the day. And we can go through the rest of this crisis being like, yeah, go us. When really... There's other things that people that are suffering beyond that. And I really feel like, and I'm not a psychologist, you know, there's some deep seated comfort in how people give and how people care for others. And they do it in a way that's safe and comfortable for them. And for me, I'm like, think outside of your comfort zone, you know, like, Yes, it looks good and it feels nice to give to those in needs, you know, those in need. And then you want to post it on Facebook and you're like, I delivered this sandwich. And it's like, girl, stop. Just deliver the sandwich. Like, we don't need you to pat yourself on the back. Like, if you want to go and help people, help people. Like, find who actually, and I know I'm ranting, but also ask, you know, like, ask the real question. Like, who out there needs help? Who can I help? Can somebody tell me who I can help? Because I got all this stuff and I've got all this, you know, time and whatever it is that you have, like find out who actually needs it and go there first versus assuming, okay, this population must need it. So I'm going to do that for them. Like, that's a problem for me. But it's also, like you said, Nikki, it's, it's, you know, you can't say it publicly because people are like, you just don't understand. And you're just not being, you know, I'm trying my best. And it's like, try harder, dig deeper. And it doesn't even have to be, as you know out it doesn't have to be a big effort it can be something as simple as venmoing your hairstylist like it can be as big as you know and it and it doesn't even have to be the whole cost of what your appointment would have been maybe it's just the tip like but knowing that a hairstylist a nail person out of work those people, yeah my eyebrow lady if i had her venmo she would have gotten this money because i look a mess and so I just feel like people are forgetting that it does not take an act of war. It literally could just be, I'm going to send this person this and I'm going to let it be. Or I've been seeing people posting saying, hey, if you've been laid off and you are hungry, please message me. No one ever has to hear about it. Just message me. And I think that that's important too, because while at least here, we're still on the beginning edge of the whole furloughs and, and layoffs. In, I feel like in another week or so, there's going to be more and more people, you know, where people are starting to burn through those savings accounts right now. So I feel like, in, you know, we're shut down till June 10th, like officially shut down till wow. June 10th. That's a long time. And if you weren't, if you're not laid off this time, but if maybe, you know, 
in the next month or so, there's going to be more and more people in need and they might not be there yet, but they might be there in a couple weeks. So I, I really hope that like, I know we're seeing this on the front end, but I hope and pray that people will continue to support until we get to the other side, because it's going to have more ramifications than I think anybody really realized. And yes, the economy is important, but it can't have an economy if everybody's dead. Humanity. Like you uh, just, yeah. A hundred percent agree. And it's one that. of my biggest pet peeves that someone who, you know, studies the economy and does these things, it irks me that people are choosing or people are being like, oh, let's focus on the economy when really there's people, like there's humans impacted. Like I get the economy, but what's the point in having an economy if there's not going to be any of the people to support it because we're going to have a lot less votes. Me, Sasha, and I had a sidebar rant about how pissed I was at all this money that was going to propping up the stock market, like all those big picture things. I was like, you know, we we know income inequality. Only the rich people are already invested in the markets. <laughs> it's comical. I, you know, I wondered, so I had a couple of thoughts. One was, you know, we're also in the middle of our ableism arc on our podcast. And it really, what you said was ask, ask first before assuming, because that's something that we talked about already in this conversation. But the other thing is, People feel better when they're acknowledged for their good deeds. If we're going back to basic psychology. So I think, you know, you mentioned that thing about the Facebook sandwich pat on the back, a hundred like percent agree, like unnecessary, but it makes people feel good. Like they're part of this movement. And I feel like the hard part with some of this conversation is that people aren't aware, like the people who are really in dire straits are not posting that on social media. It's not visible. So it's not as easy to be part of that loop. Like if I were to just say who's out of work or whatever, that's just my circle. But there's a hell of a lot of people out there who are not in my circle who need help and who could use help and who we could help. And it takes that extra effort. It's not easy. So I don't even know if it's like a cheat sheet that we go, these are the people in your immediate community who are probably out of work that you haven't even thought about, like all the things you were just mentioning. And maybe we make this cheat sheet and start there. And then here are the second round people that you really need to, you know, if you have more outside of your immediate community and can help, here's other organizations. And then I feel like they're also, though, to your point, Nakia, about the second round coming, I'm sure there's got to be people who are like, I can't help yet because I don't know if I'm going down the tubes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fair. And that, and honestly, I feel like a lot of people are there. Even if you think you're securing your job, I think a lot of folks are like, uh, I don't, I don't know. know. Can mm-hmm. I help? Like, what, should I help? Because I might need this money in a couple weeks or even just, you know, I'm one thing that I've continuously thought about through this, you know, this time, I have two parents that land squarely in that demographic of people that are very at risk, you know, Mama's rheumatoid arthritis has been a lifelong smoker. Dad has a myriad of all those fun diseases that they say are prevalent in the black community, high blood pressure, gout, uh, diabetes, all that. And who is still out at Lowe's? My dad buying stuff for the houses that he works on. Where is my mother? Oh, she was serving meals because even though she's a school teacher, there is a contract. When you sign a contract with the county, just because school closed doesn't mean that you're not working. You still have to earn your paycheck so you can be repurposed by the school system to do the work of the county. The level no, no face covering. They did give them gloves. For what? I mean, but this is it, right? 
So like when we talk about the inequalities and we talk about, and everyone's like, oh, well, it's not a race thing. And it's like, let's break it down. You know, the people who are doing the baseline work that still has to happen in order for us to get on buses, you know, to get on the subway, to get food at the supermarket, you know, depending on where you live, they look a certain way. Okay, so when everyone's shocked, like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're saying that, you know, the black community is experiencing more often. It's like, who do you think is driving the truck to get you your food that you then hoard in your house and let rot? Like, what are you talking about? And even that, who's your (laughs) Instacart people? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and the people have the audacity to complain about the, well, you know, it's absurd that I couldn't get all of the things that I wanted when I went to the supermarket the other day. And then I had to wait in line for 20 minutes. It's like, girl, bye. (laughs) I can't. At least you had the money to stand in the line. Like That was the one thing that I was like, every time I went to the grocery store and I've gone significantly less than I usually do, because I, you know, you from between work and home, you're like, okay. And Richmond has more grocery stores per capita than anywhere else in the country. <laughs> so, it, you know, a 30 minute drive, you're passing 20 grocery stores. So you're like, oh, like, I don't need to go to Kroger. I'll hit Publix. Yeah. And it's like, you know, with the first thing, and I think back on this and I'm just like, wow, I cannot believe that I did that. But the first thing I thought was, I'm going to Trader Joe's. They're shutting us down for two weeks. I'm going to go get some wine. And best believe that I, I stood in line at Trader Joe's and I was like, if I get Corona, I got it from standing in this, in this line. <laughs> like it was not, it was no one else. Like it was, there was no other situation where I endured that many people for that length that of time. Of it was weirdest thing. They had more sales on the day, the Thursday before they shut down a whole bunch of stuff than they did at Christmas. Like wow. Christmas season. It beat an entire, like one day beat an entire season. So I'll say this, Sarah, in terms of your question being, how is it that people can help if they themselves feel like they might be financially strapped in the future or, you know, job insecure? I I think that what people can do is if, if you're educated enough to understand what this is doing and the long term effects of this, then you have to share that message with others and you have to you know, help others understand the importance of doing the things that we're asking everyone to do. And if you can't financially help people, you know, then it's about like, if you have a neighbor or you know somebody who lives in a town over who can't do it, check in. You know what I mean? Like there are so many different ways that people can help without it being this like, well, I just, I don't have the bandwidth financially to do it. It's like, you don't have to open up your pocketbook, but you do have to open up your mind and you have to be willing to understand that this is far more difficult for some people than it is for you. And by understanding that we can be a better population of people, you know, like by just simply understanding like, man, I am not suffering the worst of this because I know that there are people who have even less than I do. So what can I do from where I sit to make it better for them? And it can be as simple as just asking someone, how are they? Dude, how is her family? Because, and now's the time. I mean, I, I love a good Zoom chat more than anybody. Well, not really. Actually, those make me it's, miserable. And I'm not going to lie. Um, I, <laughs> I, I literally hate them, but I will do them for people that clearly, obviously need them a little bit more than I do. But, and there's some friends that I have reserved that space for, but some people are not going to get on a Zoom chat and say that they are at their breaking point. 
Like there are, there's some mental health things you can do to support your friend. You can connect people to resources. Like if you got like the wherewithal to kind of like figure out like, okay, you know, this food bank's doing this, or you have, uh, you know, access to the internet and things. Maybe it's as simple as allowing a neighbor's child to access your internet so that they can keep up with their schoolwork. It doesn't have to be huge. It can be something as simple as that because you're making the difference for that one family or you're answering the call to that one person who they might have been in a darker place than what people realize. So it doesn't have to be, you know, and it doesn't have to be big. So this is going to sound, you know, as I talked about the whole, like, how are you patting your back on, you know, patting yourself on the back sandwich thing. But okay. So what I do and, you know, I pick one day of the week and I say, that's my touch point day. And that day of the week, I pick 10 people who I haven't talked to in a little bit and I shoot them a, how are you doing text? What's up? How's the family? You guys good? Everything good? You need anything? And honestly, it can be something as simple as that. Cause I know what my max, my level is and I know what I can handle. And I'm like, I can handle 10 people in one day that I reach out to and I say, how's your mom? How are you guys doing? And like, it's that small kind of thing that if everybody did a little bit of that less like, I can't believe that they didn't have this. And it would be like, I really feel like we could get through this and actually come out of this in a way where it's like, man, you know, humanity is not trash. (laughs) I I love that. I I I do this thing. Yeah. Right. Like, and I have my, this, I basically on my own, since I'm weird like this, I created a while ago, like a good people list. Mm -hmm. right? Where I was like, these are like my core, my brothers, my mom, like I know who I need to, but sometimes the week just flies by. And as an introvert, I kind of like forget. And then if we can expand that list, so like you have your core, but if you have any more capacity, increasing your touch point to the people that you might not have otherwise included in that sort of inner circle of your, you know, the real like people that you can, but like you said, I mean, I'm really sitting here thinking about my hairdresser aside from the fact that I desperately miss her and my roots really want to get colored soon. But like, you know, she sent a few emails, like group emails. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, uh, to be honest, I never wrote her back being like, how are you really doing right now? Cause it yeah. was more, she was updating me on the state of her business or this is when you can make appointments again, just that push to expand the circle. Even if it's one or two people a week, whatever you can do, I think that connects us humanity right yeah that's what it was all of it we're talking about humanity and connecting with each other and really relationships are the cornerstone of all of our long-term health and happiness so it seems like a time where we could probably double down on that and understanding just like taking the time to understand someone else's space point of view you know and not making assumptions like oh they just must be running the streets and it's like maybe they have nowhere to go Well, and even if you, let's say, if you're able to do something financially, but you're falling on a budget because we all still have bills, go in with someone. If you have like a friend group from college, like I've been really lucky to stay connected with a lot of my sorority sisters. So, you know, we kind of pulled together some money and did things for a couple of folks. And it can be some of that too, because not only are you providing that connection between the people yeah. that supported the hunt, and then it just, you know, sends out another connection to folks that, you know, maybe you haven't talked to them in, in five years, you followed them on Instagram for that time and stalked them, but you have not spoken to those people. You don't know what's going on over there. So 
I mean, it's those little connections. And I've been shocked at some of the people that have come back out of the woodwork. Luckily, no ex-boyfriends. And I hope that that stays like that. It's a trap if you do. <laughs> it's a setup. It's a setup. <laughs> Don't do it. They're fine because they're bored. And you're probably bored too, but don't get into it. Um, but just, you know, especially being in that space because you never know how close someone is to the edge on some of this stuff. I mean, yeah. people have lost their livelihoods. They might be losing family members it, or they're living in fear of what they could lose. And yeah. that's dangerous as well. And so I think that if we keep those kind of things in mind, moving through these next couple months, because from what it sounds like from my Wait. epidemiologist friends, this is it's it. Gonna be a while. <laughs> it's going to be a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a while. And, and I don't even want to put the month out there that he said, but I was like, oh, then <laughs> it's going to be cold oh. again. I think truly. Can we, can we yeah. start a study that checks whether chlorine <laughs> kills the virus so we can at least throw the kids in the pool so they get some energy? All, them, all the time. I'm like the community pool. I'll just send them in and then I'll watch from the fence six feet apart from all other adults. But they don't swim. Like on the top, then it's not enough. <laughs> the visuals were just like, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. I think that was the biggest thing that I wanted to ask. I mean, Sasha, I wanted to ask was like, what do you want to see coming out of this conversation? And I love that we really f- talked a lot about that idea of connection. But what else, if anything, have we missed? I hope that things like, you know, how people are like, oh, I can't wait for things to go back to normal. I don't want normal. And I don't know if I want normal. First of all, I didn't realize that y'all were out here not washing your hands. That's nasty. <laughs> that is judgment. <laughs> Like, I cannot, I am floored at the amount of, of there were billboards. Y'all were asking your hands, you had to put up billboards? Oh, man. No, I cannot. That is probably the one thing that I'm like, I cannot believe that people were literally out here. Grown adults were out here not washing their hands, and now we have a pandemic. Literally. Okay. Like, so, I just have to say, because maybe I'm a little like, You know, like I teach out of my class, like I run classes. So I have cleaning things because I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. And by a little bit, I mean like a hell of a lot. So (laughs) like in all of our cars, it was like hand sanitizer and the kids have a routine. They get in and literally put their hands out where they walk in the car because they know mama's going to make me wash my hands as soon as I get in the car from school. Because I'm like, I don't know what you've been touching. And I swear to you, don't drink from the water fountain. So like we had all this stuff in the house and people were like, yo, where did you find that bleach and that hand sanitizer? I was like, so wait, oh. you have none? <laughs> like not one bottle in your house? That's okay. I'm not judging. It's fine. But like, you know, I do hope <laughs> that we all learn a little bit of, you know, better hand washing. Probably wash your hands. Like you should literally, it should be, like a rub in the middle, and then you like rotate around the That part. <laughs> did you see the meme or the video of someone like putting black, black tar right, on their, their hands? And it was all yeah. on her face. And I was like, no. <laughs> and we so are- basically, that was another thing that I just literally, I was floored. <laughs> I thought that we all washed our hands. So no. mm. I learned something from this, and now I'm going to approach a lot, things a lot more differently. <laughs> Um, but also just in the care and concern that we have for folks that lose their jobs, I think a lot of times, oh, I'm never shaking hands again. Elbow comes um, all the way. 
Nope. I hope that we look at joblessness differently because I think a lot of times people in time un- other than now, I think people immediately think, oh, they don't have a job. That must mean that they're lazy or that must mean that they don't have the skills to have a job or like it, there's so many things people immediately think other than that person literally just had the rug pulled from out from under them. So I think that I hope that people view joblessness a little that is differently. such a great point because today in my list of 10, one of the guys I reached out to, he owns a dental practice and he teaches at Harvard. He owns like two locations. And in the text, I said, you know, like, how's it going? You know, I assume you guys aren't really doing much practicing. And he was like, I had to furlough all of my employees. The business is pretty much dead. And he literally said, he's like, I've never been, and he's over 50. He's like, I've never been out of work in my entire life. You know, and he's from India, like moved here in college. Like, so his whole concept of like, I'm a hard worker and I'm, you know, you have to be a hard worker and you're always working. And so he literally said, he was like, this is the first time in my life that I've been without a job and you could feel the, like, that's not me, you know, like, he's like, that's not me. And I don't know what to make of it. And it's humbling because, you know, I think the reality is like people are now seeing that it's not always about you as a person. You know, there are a lot of different factors in our lives that dictate sort of what paths we end up on. And so if anything positive comes out of this, I hope it's a equalizer in some way where people realize you know, some things are just out of our control and we can't judge folks for the things that happen in their lives that aren't necessarily about who they are as people, you know? You mean like so. the fact that they're born with black skin, for example, yeah. too, right? <laughs> like just yeah. to tie that into the, like, that's another one. Yeah. Ding, ding. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. you know, and you said, you know, not viewing joblessness the same way. MK, you were saying parenting, I think teaching has been a oh, profession oh. that people have just ripped apart, but you're now, I think, a lot of parent, anybody with children right now are like, oh, a lot more respect. I just, I hope that that is what comes out of it too. Just this respect that things are not always in our control and you can't make assumptions about people and we are all people. Mm-hmm. And I hope people yeah. don't forget. Like I hope in two years time that people just don't forget where we were, you know, like I think the planet is like telling us something and it's like, get your act right, get it together behave thyselves, stop jacking stuff up, (laughs) stop stealing land. I think the biggest, like what you just said, both of you really hit home to me is like the main point of this conversation or the takeaway that I have is the world wasn't good enough beforehand. We don't want to go back to how it was. Nope. Yeah. And this is an incredible opportunity to have a reset button if we choose to make it that way. Let's hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you. Sobering note. Sorry, let's end on more like, like jokes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. No, no, I've heard all the PSA, PSA, though, seriously. If folks are going to wear masks, wear them right. Cover your nose. You breathe in all that yeah. in. Stop it. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's been great to watch. Like, let me tell you, like, you'll, you'll go and, and like you don't have to say something. Or the other ones have been like things that aren't masks are like a birthday hat. That is not a mask. You were like, you take that off your nose. You want to be like friend, friend. I love you. Don't do to that. save your life, <laughs> let me give you unsolicited don't, advice. Don't hold, 
in a plastic bag thinking that that's gonna help you no they are not they are look at the pictures of people on the subway in new york city and you're gonna see i mean desperate time like people just don't know what to do you know and they have no choice yeah and there really hasn't been good guy i mean like guidance but it's not been like it hasn't been in a a way that works for both people if i know the motto do you know where your children are and it's 10 p.m they can figure out a way to put out a commercial or two on netflix on hulu on all of that that says this is how you wear a mask that is not a mask this is how you hand sew a mask that is not a mask don't wear and that. I would really appreciate it if they stop having white men on uh, network shows or like the news holding up red and blue bandanas and Yo, them I can't help but think of L.A. I'm like, did nobody knows? Like, Nobody's no, like, who? Where's no. your producer? <laughs> I know. I grew up in L.A. and I'm always like, nope. No, um, right. you're like, do you have a purple one? Like, no. That's just idiotic colors. Like, those are the only two. <laughs> messy <laughs> well thank you thank, thank you, you so guys. much um, thank you for sharing yes if you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use it would mean a lot that helps us spread the word about our podcast or if you're into direct sharing tell a friend or five about us and if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. In honor of our one-year anniversary of this show, that's right, happy birthday to us, we want to give you a present. That's right, we're doing a giveaway over at Instagram, which you can find at Dear White Women Podcast, and also via email, you can sign up there at dearwhitewomen.com, and check it out. There's a bunch of things that you need to do just to help us spread the word, and you will be entered to win, follow the rules of the contest, and we are very excited to send you some Dear White Women swag. Happy birthday to us.